Hi, I'm Jennifer Isabella, your host for Forrester's podcast, What It Means, where we explore the major changes in the market influencing executive priorities. Today, we're joined by senior analyst Orly Lostis to discuss financial well-being, why it matters more than ever, and how financial services firms can address it. Welcome, Orly. Hi, thanks for having me. So I feel like there may be a few different definitions of financial well-being. So perhaps you can just ground us in the definition that Forrester is using, and then we can kind of take the conversation from there. Yeah, sure. Uh, you know, I think there's, um, there's a wide body of research actually relating to financial literacy, financial wellness, financial well-being, financial capability, financial resilience. There are lots of terms that can be used when we actually think about financial well-being. Um, and although I find that even though they, you know, these terms mean different things, sometimes they're being used quite um, interchangeably. So one issue is that for a long time, I think there's been somehow a lack of consensus and empirical evidence on how to define financial well-being and how it should be measured. And that's, I think that's important because, we, you know, with everything in life, if you can't define it, then you can't measure it. And if you can't measure it, then you can't manage it and you can't improve it. So I think it's important to be able to actually define what financial well-being actually is. And in my research and in the, the discussions I've had with clients, with executives, um, you know, working in financial services companies, but also with academics, I've heard and I've come across slightly uh, different definitions. But what I I can say is that the majority of the people that I interviewed or um, you know that I spoke with when doing that research, they, they mentioned two dimensions to how you measure financial well-being. They talked about an objective dimension. So this is you know, using things like financial data to assess how much money, how much savings a person has, or it could be their level of debt, it could be whether they can pay their bills, whether they have a financial cushion, their actual ability to, to absorb a financial shock. Um, but there's also a, a subjective dimension, and that's what I think is important. So this is more about assessing how people feel about um, their um, current financial situation, or, for example, how they feel about the impact of the, the, you know, the coronavirus pandemic on the finances, for instance, how financially secure they feel about the, the, the future. Um, so, you know, I think these two dimensions are really important. Then um, in, uh, you know, the discussions I've had, the, the, the existing literature you have on the, on the topic as well, um, you know, people tend to talk about what's happening in the present, so your current financial situation, um, as well as referring to the future. So things like financial resilience. So um, you know, the ability for a person to achieve his or her long-term uh, financial goals. Um, so in our research, we now refer to the definition um, by the, the U.S. Consumer Financial Protection Bureau. Um, I think it's a good definition, um, which is the a condition wherein a person can fully meet current and ongoing financial obligations, can feel secure in their financial future, and is able to make choices that allow them to enjoy life. And I think that's a, an accurate way of defining what financial well-being is. Great. And I feel like sort of in the setup of this episode, we're sort of making the assumption that maybe financial service firms aren't doing much around this topic for their customers, but maybe they think they do. So what are financial services firms doing today um, 
in support of their customers' financial well-being? And are they falling short? Obviously, we're 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 sensing a need here, so maybe it's a, a bit of a leading question, um, you know, to kind of tee you up. I mean, obviously, financial services firms are certainly presenting themselves as committed to support their customers' financial well-being, uh, and this should be the core reason for for being really. But as as we all know, actions tend to speak louder than words. Um, now, if you look back. You know, you can actually see, you know, the, the, the 2008 global financial crisis that has, in fact, caused a, a massive reputational damage, I think, to the, the financial services industry. And yet, back then, it hasn't really been enough of a, of a shock, for, I think, for firms to adopt more customer-focused, more uh, sustainable business models. And rather, if you look at the, you know, the past decade or so, um, I would say that financial services providers have focused a lot more on, on shoring up their profits. Um, the, the hard sell culture that you, you can see in many financial services organizations, that in fact has led to, as we all know, there's been a series of mis-selling scandals in all parts of, of the world. Um, so as a result, some financial you know, institutions have seen massive fines and legal costs impacting their bottom lines. But parallel to that, we've also seen, and I think that's quite inevitable, a substantial drop of consumer trust. You know, trust that their banks have their best interests at heart. Um, and I think that the current financial system has also left many people behind. So we, we, step, you know, we still see millions of consumers worldwide you know, still being quite underserved or even excluded from the financial system. I think globally you have about 1.7 billion of adults who are still unbanked. Um, and, and here I'm talking about, you know, people who don't have, uh, don't own an account at a financial institution or even through a, a mobile money provider. Um, and, and these, you know, these people might, um, you know, in, in some cases turn to quite expensive informal providers to be able to access the, the cash that they need. Um, and that's not just limited to emerging countries, right? If you're looking in the US, 25, I think it's 25% of the population that is either unbanked or underbanked. This being said, you know, when it comes to help customers better manage their money, I wouldn't say that all providers have stood still. In fact, you have many banks that have invested over the past years to, to evolve their tools and their services to help customers engage with finances and, and get a grip on, the, on their finances. Um, but I think that the, the reality, the problem is that um, personal financial management tools, uh, we often refer to them as PFM tools in the, in the industry, you know, they've been around for a while, but we, we, we found that, you know, they haven't really caught on with most customers. Um, you know, what we've seen is that, you know, starting you know, with early days, um, uh, you know, early days solutions like Mint.com, um, you know, that launched in the US, I think around 2006. Um, you know, we, we've seen these tools evolve and kind of like more for the, the, the past 15 years, um, you know, offering, you know, interesting functionality, you know, account aggregation, automatic transaction categorization, you know, budgeting tools, savings tools, code setting, etc. But I think that, you know, Financial services organizations were trying, banks were trying to embed these tools into their digital banking that was not always super well integrated. Um, so I think these tools are, are evolving, but um, you know, they, they initially on desktop and on you know, increasingly on, on mobile devices. Um, we've also seen 
you know, new fintechs, um, you know, coming into the market with a, a proliferation of, of apps to provide this kind of uh, functionality as well. But I think it has become quite clear that, you know, these early implementations have not seen the success, I think, that financial services um, firms were hoping to um, to get. Uh, and it's not because customers don't need those tools. I think that if we're looking at our technographics data, for instance, there is actually, I think, appetite for you know, solutions and tools that can, that can help customers better manage their finances. But I think the problem is, is often that, you know, these solutions are not actionable enough. They, they fail to drive behavioral change and, and to deliver, you know, deliver tangible outcomes for, for customers. Um, so I, I think it's very much about evolving, I think, evolving these tools. Uh, you know, I, I think we've seen some really good, um, you know, early implementations, but I think it's, it's pretty much about evolving that. Is there a gap in terms of, you know, financial services brands sort of presenting themselves as being a bit more on the customer side, but those tools, to your point, are still kind of like early day tools and they're not delivering on that promise. So customers are getting kind of frustrated and, and fed up there, or is that not really what's happening within the industry? I think one of the main issues is that often what you find on banking websites or even in, in mobile banking apps, I think the tools that are available are often very static, very generic. They're not really, they're not always relevant, I think, to customers' specific needs and, you know, to their context, their circumstances, and, you know, their I mean, quite unpredictable, you know, financial lives. Uh, you know, when it comes to money, you you find that, like, with lots of things, you know, one size does not fit all. Um, and, and the problem is also that many of these tools require a lot of manual inputs. Um, I think they, they put a lot of, uh, you know, probably too much cognitive load also on the, on the customer, so it's not always easy to use. It can be quite, uh, you know, time-intensive, and, and few people are actually willing to invest a lot of time and effort to, to manage their money. Um, I think there's a, a lot of... Um, there's a lot of inertia when it comes to money management. Um, and, and, and frankly, I think that, you know, you also find that many people don't have the, you know, lack the, the knowledge, I think, and, and don't have the skills, um, you know, to, to manage their money effectively. So, you know, customers, I think, need tools. I think, there's, as I said, I think there is appetite, but I think they need more guidance. They, they need a little nudge now and then. Um, mm -hmm. And I think they need better tools to, to make better decisions and to, to achieve definite goals. How are you seeing like new players in the space sort of creep in and I'm assuming try to fill that gap a bit, a bit more? Yeah. So, you know, I think now is, the, is a good opportunity to, I think, to rethink these tools. And I think we also have the, uh, you know, what is interesting that we also have, I think, the, the technologies to mm -hmm. enable, I think, tools that are um, a bit more, you know, conduct personal, a bit more, uh, you know, that take into consideration, I think, the context of the of the customer and the specific needs. Um, so obviously, I mean, you know, when, when there is a need, there is a, a new entrance that is there, to, I think, to, um, you know, to bring opportunities, I think. And, and uh, there's certainly a number of uh, fintech new entrants that are trying to, um, you know, demonstrate, I think, um, kind of, you know, purpose and, and, and strong social commitments by deploying tools that um, are, 
you know, kind of closer to what customers need. So um, I, you know, I can mention, I think, a, a few um, a few fintech here and as well as, you know, I think challenger banks, because I think challenger banks um, have been really good at trying to innovate around customer needs. So trying to be very agile in the way that they're developing tools, um, but also trying to understand what, you know, customers were, you know, actually need, needing and trying to, to develop these tools. Um, so if you're looking at, you know, coaching apps like um, Digit in the US, or there's a, an app with Cleo in, in the UK. Um, as I said, I think they're pretty keen on trying to differentiate in the market by advancing financial health and, and um, you know, promoting financial inclusion for some of them and, and demonstrating that social um, impact. Um, if you take Challenge Bank like Chime in the US or Monzo in the UK, I think it's also a, a very good example. Um, they are using digital technologies to innovate in, in the PFM space. So, you know, they're offering budgeting tools and savings tools. They are, um, you know, offering credit building tools, uh, for example, in, in the US. So encouraging customers with very personal financial insights, but also nudges to help customers build, you know, financial capability and financial resilience. Um, you know, it's interesting to see that even a challenger bank like Monzo in the UK, they have a vulnerability team. So they have people who, have, you know, have been trained to be able to understand the needs of more kind of vulnerable customers and, and answering those needs. And let's keep on going down that that kind of customer lens path because, you know, COVID-19 sort of is a lens through which we have had a lot of conversations over the past year, obviously. Um, and we sort of queued this conversation up that financial well-being is really important now. And so how are those two things sort of intersecting? And, you know, it's interesting that you're sort of talking about customer vulnerability specifically, um, but but how is COVID-19 impacting customers through the, this lens of, you know, financial well-being? Yeah, so, I mean, obviously we have a, a, a lot of data. We've published a lot of data, um, you know, in the just after the outbreak of, uh, of COVID-19 because we wanted to well, to understand, you know, what was the, the impact of uh, COVID-19 on, on customers. Um, and I think that it's it's important to realize, I mean, it's nothing new. You always had, you know, customers who were living, you know, paycheck by paycheck. And I think that with the, 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 the crisis, the, the outbreak of COVID-19, things um, got a lot worse for, uh, for many customers. Um, but, you know, you know and, and I think that, you know, what we can expect actually is that there will be long-term economic impacts of COVID-19 on, on society. Um, but, you know, it's, it's you know, it, it was interesting to see when we did, we did a survey earlier this year to understand um, the, 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 the impact on, on customer finances and so that the behaviors, uh, just to give you some, um, some, some data points, maybe. Uh, at the time, we had 17% of the adult population in the US, 13% in the UK that had already seen you know, the earnings hours or wages reduced due to COVID-19. Uh, and I think we will see further job losses and, and people being furloughed or, you know, laid off. So obviously this is going to, and this is already affecting uh, people's ability to spend and to meet their financial commitments. Um, again, in our survey, we saw that 16% of Americans say they had missed a bill or a loan payment. 
in, in looking in Europe, 69% of Italian respondents say the same thing. Now, in the US, 56% said they reduced their spending to a minimum as a result of the pandemic. I think luckily some customers were able to save amid the pandemic because they were not traveling, they were, uh, you know, shuttering at home. So, for example, we saw that 47% of Americans said that they were actively saving more. But this is because of, you know, economics uncertainty caused by the, the, the COVID-19 pandemic. I think what we also need to understand is that the pandemic is also increasing levels of anxiety and also affecting consumers' mental health. Um, again, looking at the, the data we have, we know now that 61% of Americans say that they're anxious, that there will be a severe economic recession or even a depression. Uh, and the situation is, is not any better in Europe. Um, you know, only 47% of the UK population say that they feel financially, uh, you know, that they, 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 um, they, they are not feeling financially prepared to handle the, the, the economic impacts of the, the pandemic. Um, you know, in France, 40% say that they're anxious about their current financial situation. So I think that th there's a lot of uncertainty, I think, on the horizon. But something that I think we can all agree on is that COVID-19 is, is going to act as a, as a catalyst for change change on the consumer side, because as I said, consumers are, um, you know, worried about the future. Um, and, you know, going back to what I was saying earlier, financial well-being is not just about how much money you have in your bank account. It's also about how you feel about your, your finances. Um, and I think that consumers are going to, um, I think are going to change sometimes the, the way that they behave, um, especially regarding the, you know, how they manage their money. Um, uh, you know, as, as a result of the, the pandemic. But I think it will also drive change on the business side. I think we will see more firms using that opportunity to demonstrate leadership and purpose by developing a, a more robust financial well-being program. Let's dig into that a little bit more. I mean, what are you, you know, what are you talking to clients about on this front? What are you seeing in the market as financial services executives do identify this as an opportunity um, to, you know, I assume build deeper relationships with their customers and uh, frankly, a, a different type of relationship with their customers. Yeah. So, I, you know, I think it's, I often say it's not just about the technology. I think that the problem, what I, you know, the problem I've seen over the past few years is that all the banks were very much trying to, I mean, they were trying to innovate to understand, you know, what kind of tools they could build to help customers manage their money. But I think that a lot of, a lot of executives, I think, underestimated that um, there, there's also a human psychology element uh, when it comes to financial well-being. And therefore, it's not just about the technology that you're going to, to provide to customer, it's about understanding also how people relate to money, um, you know, how they make decisions about their finances. Um, and I think that what you find is that there are multiple um, types, you know, I mean, that we all relate in a very different way to, to how we're, we're managing our money. So I think it's very important when you're going to develop tools and, uh, and services for customers um, that you take this human psychology elements, I think, uh, into consideration. Um, and therefore, I think, you know, I think the next generation of, of financial experiences will obviously leverage 
a range of technologies and AI and uh, machine learning, um, automation. Um, but I think that it's also about you know, leveraging all the advances that have been made, um, you know, in behavioral science, understanding, you know, all these kind of cognitive biases that sometimes I think, you know, are kind of psychological barriers for, for customers and try to understand how we weave, um, you know, kind of behavioral insights into all, you know, kind of platforms and then tools and, and services so that customers um, are more, you know, better equipped to, to make the right decisions that are going to help them improve their, their, their financial health. So I think it's very much about the tools you're offering to customers and the technologies that you're going to use as much as how you're going to design these tools. Um, and, um, and yeah, kind of weave these elements of behavioral science into financial experience design to, to help protect, you know, consumers a, a bit more and create more effective approaches to improving consumers' financial capability. And so I think you you know in your research sort of three um, vectors or, or aspects that executives should consider as they're developing products. Maybe you could walk us through that, Orly. You know, the way um, I think about financial well-being is that it goes beyond, and it has to go beyond PFM, which is what mm -hmm. everybody was talking about for at least like a, you know, a decade. I think that, you know, in the I think in the future we will see firms, and that's um, traditional financial services firms as well as fintechs, develop products and and services and processes around three customer needs. I think that the first one is financial capability, which for me is about developing tools and services that help customers better manage their day to day finances, but also kind of plan for the the, the short term and the longer term. Uh, help them make the right financial decisions and, and help them achieve their goals. And I think as part of that, there is also uh, financial literacy, which, which for me is an element of financial capability. Financial literacy is providing the, the skills, the knowledge that an individual needs in order to make well-informed financial decisions. And that takes me to the, the second uh, need, which is financial protection. I think there is an imperative there. I think we need to make sure that all consumers and especially the most vulnerable customers are protected from harm, that they are being tr treated fairly by their financial services providers, but also that they are supported and that they are compensated when things go wrong. And that requires firms to truly embed the fair treatments of their customers into their culture, into the policies and, and, and their processes. And the third element, the, the, the third aspect is financial inclusion. Um, so I was talking earlier about, you know, unbanked or underbanked customers. I think we need to make sure, the industry need to make sure that nobody is left behind. Um, and so financial services providers need to make sure that all consumers have access to fair-priced financial products and services that meet their needs and that are delivered in a responsible and, and sustainable way. You know, we, we talk a lot about um, sustainable finance. Um, I think this is, a, this is becoming a, a very important topic, and especially, I think, now, um, you know, after the, the, the outbreak of, of COVID. Uh, but interestingly, when we talked about sustainable finance, I think we're talking a lot about green finance. 
um, you know, ESG stands for you know, environment and, and, and social and, and, and governance. But I think we should not forget the, the S, I think, in, in ESG. I think that committing to sustainability means also committing to the sustainability of the business itself. And that's about promoting a, a stable financial services sector that creates jobs that improve customers' financial health and that, that really support responsible economic growth for everyone. I want to just touch on one word that you had mentioned in, in your last response, and that was sort of the culture and the culture change, I assume, that would be required at some of these financial services firms to um, implement you know, financial well-being programs or really have it take hold. So, um, and that's not insignificant work, I imagine. That's a huge mind shift and cultural shift, I'm assuming. Um, so could you talk a little bit about what are some of those cultural changes that would need to take place for, for this to really work at many firms today? I really, truly believe that financial well-being is a huge opportunity for financial services firms. Um, but I think that if they want to realize that vision and if they want to um, either create a financial well-being program or evolve a financial well-being program, if they already have certain things in place, I think first they need to understand where they where they are, their the current state, and then how to advance. Uh, and I find often that one big obstacle um, can be culture. I think that, you know, the, the culture within the organization. Um, I think that implementing a financial well-being program requires a, a cultural shift within organizations. Um, I think it's very much about aligning the interest of the company with the interest of, of customers. Um, and I think that having the, the right cultural foundations in place is really important, is really crucial um, if you want to successfully kind of design, but also kind of execute on your financial well-being program. If you don't if you don't address that cultural element first, I think the risk is that your strategy remains a, an empty promise and either you, you can't take it off the ground when, when you launch it or you know, it kind of crumble or you, you, you can't even secure additional funding to kind of develop what you're trying to do. So I think it's very much about senior leaders driving home the why. Is why are we doing that and for whom are we doing it? And, and embed financial well-being values across the organization. I think alignment is, is, is essential. And I think it's also about, you know, if you want to inspire that very customer-centric culture, I think it's you need to involve you know, all the employees, you need to make sure, and if you want to do that well, you need to provide them with the the knowledge and the skills and sometimes the training, the tools, the design processes that then, you know, are going to enable them to effectively serve and, and protect customers. So I think it, it's really important, I think, for firms to understand that it's just not the role of a team. Uh, you know, it's, it's not just the, that's not like just a financial well-being team or, you know, the, the digital team that is going to look after that. I think it's, you know, think about what's going to happen in your contact center, uh, in your branches, the, you know, the face-to-face -face interactions that customers, including vulnerable customers, might have with your, um, with your kind of, you know, frontline employees. I think that's that's really important. And I think it's also about 
it's also about measuring, um, you know, what you're doing. I think that's, um, you know, going back to what I said earlier, if you can't measure what you, you're doing, you can't really improve it. Um, so I think that firms that are really committed to customers' financial well-being, they also need to ensure that they are, um, uh, you know, kind of continuously improving what they're doing. And again, understanding the needs of customers, understanding whether their products are having a good, you know, a good impact on their customers, but also whether, you know, sometimes, you know, it, it can have a, a negative impact and is maybe not intended, but it, it could be the case. So I think firms need to, um, you know, develop their products and the services in a very iterative manner. But, you know, as I said, it's considering the positive and the, the negative impacts of each of their um, products or, you know, services on on customers. I think that's really important. So, in, you know, for example, you know, it's, it's using methods like inclusive design, I think, can help firms consider how vulnerabilities can actually affect customer experience and, and customer outcomes. So, Orly, as executives are considering, pondering, or even, you know, thinking of evolving their existing financial well-being program and, and services, what are the two to three points that you want to reiterate that are critical to the success of, of these types of services and, and programs? I think that's um, what we find is, is that firms are, you know, different firms are different um, with these stages. Um, you know, um, some have started working on these initiatives, you know, a decade ago, and some are just looking into it. So um, I think that there are three critical areas that firms should focus on. I think, um, you know, culture, you know, is probably the most important. I think that implementing a financial well-being program requires a real cultural shift in the organization. So, uh, you know, firms need to make sure they are kind of aligned, um, you know, with make sure their interests are aligned with the interests of their of their customers. So having the, having the right um, cultural foundation in place is very important for firms if they want to be successful in the way they design and execute on their um, the, the, the program. Um, I think that senior leaders have to to drive home the why and they have to embed financial well-being values across the organization. It's really important if you want to drive this kind of initiative. Um, I think second, firms need to you know focus also on, on data and technologies. Um, Obviously, like financial services providers are going to have to evaluate and to adopt a, a wide range of technologies to support their financial well-being program. Uh, or, or financial well-being take side report presents actually presents a, a, an analysis of the eighteen technology categories that support financial well-being. But one major challenge, though, is the is the lack of access to reliable data. So there's a, a huge potential for firms to improve financial experiences, but there remain issues with data availability and interoperability. Uh, I think banks are sitting on troughs of data, but there's a lack of quality data and limited data standardization remains quite a, a, a big challenge for many firms. And, and, and third, measurements. I mean, you know, going back to what I said earlier, if you can't measure it, then you can't improve it. And the firms that are committed to improve their customers' financial health. They need to ensure the continuous improvement of their products and of their services. And that requires working in a very agile, iterative manner. Um, I think they also need to 
consider the positive and the negative impacts and what they're building on their customers. So using methods like inclusive design will help firms consider how vulnerabilities can affect the, the customer experience and the, the, the outcomes for, for customer. But also if you want to justify investments in building your financial well-being program, then you also need to be able to quantify the impact of your strategy. So here, you know, metrics is also very important. And that's why I think firms need to, to link their financial well-being metrics to customer, but also to, to business outcomes. Great. Well, thank you for joining us today. Thank you. If you like what you heard today, subscribe to Forrester's What It Means podcast on iTunes, Google Podcasts, and Spotify, or your favorite podcast player. To continue the conversation, follow Forrester on Twitter, Instagram, and LinkedIn. Thanks for listening.